Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you are new, welcome and thanks for joining us. If not, welcome back. Last week, uh, we began our summer series focused on the narratives of the book of Genesis. And we said that they are extremely important for our spiritual formation and our identity in God and in Jesus. And our knowledge and understanding of these stories is integral to not only your orthodoxy, which is your beliefs regarding the scriptures, but also your orthopraxy, how you live out those beliefs in fruitful action as you join God in the renewal of all things. And I phrase it like that because if you read these stories, that's what God is up to, the renewal of all things. Uh, but first, let me give you a heads up on a few opportunities coming up on the church calendar. First, next week, Monday evening, May 24th, we will be hosting a Zoom discussion that is super, super important. We're going to be talking about Latasha Morrison's book, Be the Bridge, which is all about racial reconciliation and healing within the church and in the world, and it's going to help us have a biblical framework for restoration as a church, uh, both in the church and in the world. So uh, though subject to change, the next announcement, uh, it's subject to change because of COVID um, and, and the possible increase of that in our community, but our next in-person service will be on Sunday, June 6th. Please hop online and pre-register for that today, and it's going to help us plan our setup accordingly if you do that. So once again, that service is going to be family style, and Kids City will not be open, but kids are welcome to join us all together, and we'll have stuff for them to do. Following that service at 1130, we're going to have an in-person newcomers hangout that will be socially distanced in our worship center. And if you are new to the church uh, community, if you've been following us online, YouTube, Facebook, and you want to come and get the gist of who we are and what we're about, that is for you. So, like I said last week, the beginning of God's story and the end of his story are both extremely important because what you believe about how the story begins and what you believe about how the story ends is critical to how you live out your faith right now because we live in between. We live in between the beginning and the end. So today we're following up on what we discovered last week, namely that we believe the scriptures are inspired, meaning they are God-breathed, but we also know that the scriptures contain several different genres of literary scope, of breadth and depth, and that this God-breathed authoritative message is not necessarily speaking to us about accuracy. We looked at several passages that are not quite obviously, they're not obviously to, to be taken literally because they're full of hyperbole. And we discovered and gave credence to the fact that God is able to do this in his God-breathed message to us, and the message is still able to be inspired and also infallible and inerrant. And to take that a bit further, we notice that those labels that we affirm, while they are important, they are not always useful. They don't always work. But we landed on the fact that the term God-breathed or inspired does work even in and through different types of genre and rhetorical and literary devices that different authors in the scriptures used with God's help. And so it's important to recognize genre in the scriptures. It matters because if you don't understand genre and its nuance, let alone the historical and cultural context, then you won't understand the particular parts uh, of the narrative and how they are authoritative and, and how they have implications for your life. So from there, we talked about how at the beginning of Genesis, particularly the poetic creation narrative at the beginning, it's authoritative, but it needs to be viewed through this lens of genre. It is a poetic, creative, narrative genre. When it was written down and later spoken to the first hearers, and then the audiences after that, 
as an Eastern narrative, it was never meant to be accurate in the sense that we mean by that term in our modern Western society. What it was conveying was that there was a God who was different from other supposed gods out there. One who isn't mad at you. One who is creative and caring and loving. He baraz the heavens or creates them. He is spirit. He is the Ruach Merifetz. He is a God who speaks a word. He just speaks and things happen. So we went through the first creation account in the scriptures from Genesis 1, and we didn't get to the second creation account in Genesis 3, which we will do a little bit later today. And by the way, if you didn't know there was a second creation account, well, stick around. And we noticed all these, all these rhythms and cadences that reveal that the author, and by extension God, is definitely writing in this poetic, poetic creation narrative in this genre form. And through that, we see that the focus of this story is on the who and the what. Its primary focus is not on telling us how this creation was made, i.e. it's not necessarily that the world was made exactly and accurately like this in a seven literal days, if you will. But since the story is the genre of an Eastern poetic creation narrative, then we looked at how there are some deeper truths buried within for those who are willing to do the work. And finally, we wrapped it up last week by discussing that this, this interesting thing called the chiasm. And we discovered that this poem at the beginning of Genesis 1 falls into the category of that particular rhetorical device. And leading us to the treasure, it leads us to the treasure in the middle of the poem, which happens to be in the middle of Genesis 1, verse 14, precisely on the word moad. Moad is the word for sacred times, for Sabbath, for festivals, for a party. This is the treasure at the middle of the chiasm, at the middle of the poem that that hard work is leading us to. But to really truly understand why this word moad is significant, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience to this message. The Israelites were the first ones who would have heard this story at Mount Sinai just after being rescued from slavery in Egypt. Moses, he learned this heritage along with the Ten Commandments and he taught it to God's newly formed people, the people that he said were his. And so we have to imagine what it, have been, what it would have been like to hear this stuff about this God who barad and created everything out of nothing. Where did they just come from? What were their lives like before their rescue? They were slaves. They worked all day, every day, making bricks. And how much time did they get off? None. And in the Egyptian narrative, your value is tied to your productivity. If you can't hit your quota, if you don't make enough bricks, what are they going to do with you? Well, you become obsolete and they get rid of those who are obsolete. So this is very bad news for you and your family if you aren't able to meet your quota and live up to the productivity that they expect. And I, I know some of you are like, what the heck is he getting at? This stuff is super old and no longer relevant to us because we're so advanced now in the 21st century. But I beg you to just hang with me for a minute. Let me explain then why this understanding is so important. When God chose to write and tell his first poetic creation narrative about himself and who he is and his relationship to his creation, particularly humans who are made in his image, this is his first lesson in this poetic creation narrative. God is telling his people in this new creation narrative, look, you've come out of a world where your value and your worth only comes from your work and how many bricks you can produce. And I'm telling you, the first lesson you have to learn is Stop, Moad, stop, and know how to throw a party, and 
know how to remember the goodness of creation because you're not valuable because of what you can produce. You are valuable because you are made in my image and I love you. This is lesson number one. And this message echoes throughout those refrains we looked at last week, the phrases that pop out, the rhythms and cadences of these phrases that pop out three times, seven times, and 10 times over, particularly that one that's really hard to miss. And it, was, and it, it says this, and it was evening and morning the first day, and it was evening and morning the second day, and the third day. Did you know that in the Jewish world, your day starts the night before? Yeah, it didn't start this morning, it started last night. In the Western world, we've been culturally conditioned for decades, centuries, that our day starts in the morning. Why? Because morning is the time to start producing. But in the Jewish world, the day starts when you go to bed. Because the first thing that you do with your day is you rest. The day starts at night and it begins with rest. And what that cadence reveals is this. You are not defined by what you do. In the Jewish narrative, you are defined by who you are. Anybody know what it's like to sit and watch your kids sleep after you put them to bed? It's just beautiful because they're so peaceful and you get to see them for who they are. And why would we think God wouldn't do that with us? Evening and then morning. The refrain reinforces that you are defined by who you are and not what you do. What's going on here in this strange and beautiful creation poem, it's just... It's interesting, I'll tell you. God is saying, trust me. Trust in the goodness of my creation. You don't need to work to find your worth and value. Instead, rest. It's this physical practice of rest that's gonna draw you into a much greater spiritual reality. The physical discipline and practice of Sabbath invites me to remember and train my spiritual self to be more aware of a spiritual reality right now. And this is really important for us as Christians because I've found in my experience that we begin our story too late. We need to begin in Genesis 1. But from my whole life, for a lot of Christians that I've met, Christian theology starts in Genesis 3. And what happens in Genesis 3? Sin happens in Genesis 3. Do you think he can fly? Shh. Here he comes. Well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. Matthew, we fell asleep in church, didn't we? Yes, we did. And Thomas, you were slow dancing a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. Let's see, and you, I forgot your name, so you're off the hook for now. Um, hmm. Philip, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind that big rock the other day. Thaddeus, I hate to say I saw you stick up your middle finger at someone who cut you off when you were riding your camel. Benjamin, you aren't wearing your WWJD bracelet. Jacob, I don't mind you saying my name, but not after you stub your toe. And Frank, 
You know what you did. I just can't repeat it because I'm Jesus. Alright, all you sinners, come with me. It's time to pay the piper. Man, it was only one cigarette. I heard that. When, you, when your fundamental identity is that you're a sinner, you're not starting the story in the right place. Uh, your fundamental identity is to be human. And to be human means you are made in the image of God. Now, step number two, are you a sinner? And the answer is yes. But I have to put sin in its appropriate place in the story. In the grand narrative of the scriptures, sin is not where the story begins. And it's also not where the story ends either. And that's why this is extremely important. If I start the story in Genesis 1, it's about restoration and life. It's about bringing us and the whole world back to the way it's supposed to be, to what it was then. If I start in Genesis 3, it's about removal. Get this sin out of me and get me out of this world. If I start in Genesis 1, it's about who I am. If I start in Genesis 3, it's about who I'm not. If I start in Genesis 1, it's about physical participation. I'm invited, I'm invited to join God in the work of creation. But if I start in Genesis 3, it's about this disembodied, nebulous, esoteric evacuation. The world stinks and some glad morning when this life is over, I'm gonna fly away. But here's the deal, listen to this. In Genesis 1, there is no other place. There's no heaven. It's just the new physical created good world of Genesis 1. But modern Christian theology has said for a while now that we should just dump this world, get rid of it, and fly away to heaven. Let's wait around and then abandon this mess and go to that other place, the good place. And that's not how the biblical narrative works. The good place actually comes here to this place in Revelation 21 and 22 because the story God is telling about himself and what he's up to, the, one he, the, the who he is and what he's doing, both in Genesis 1 and in Revelation 21 and 22, they are intertwined and, and fundamentally in, connected to each other. They, they contain a narrative where the dirt and spirit of this world are united, but the brokenness of the world has pulled them apart. And this leads to some implications for us as we wrap this up. First, as we've been looking at the beginning of this poetic narrative in Genesis 1, we see that God decisively declared over and over again in rhythm and in rhyme that creation is good. And guess what? Since he is the creator, he has the final authority on the matter. This is a good place. It's not the chaotic result of polytheistic gods in conflict. This creation narrative is about a God who loves his creation. In this creation narrative, God is like, look, look what I made. Look what I made. Look what I made next. Isn't this cool? Look, oh, I got an idea. Look at this. God's the creator and he gets to decide that it's good. And yes, there's Genesis 3, but it doesn't undo the truth of Genesis 1. The, the second implication is God calling us to trust others that are a part of this good creation too. Even your enemies, or your coworkers, your boss, or your neighbor, or your family, and your kids, and your spouse. Every human on this planet is created in God's image. And guess what? He loves them. We're called to walk and live in that reality and trust the story he's telling us and then act accordingly. And please do remember that God told Adam he needed Eve before the fall, not after. Humanity is the crowning jewel of God's story. 
and creation. He has given us each other as a piece of creation to help us all participate in making the story good alongside of him. All of these people are not a part of your life's brokenness. They are part of your life's wholeness. The third implication has to do with your part in the story, your part and my part. I have to trust and rest in the fact that I too am a part of this good creation. I have to quit buying into the narrative that my value comes from how many bricks I can make, the productivity cycle, that I'm not educated enough, that I'm not smart enough, that I'm not productive enough, that I'm not pretty or handsome enough, that I'm not enough. Enough is enough, all right? We have to, we have to stop, we have to rest, just rest, and realize that God is saying, enough with that, because I made you, and I love you, and it's not because of what you do. Fundamentally, you are enough, all on your own, because he made you that way. So we have to stop running and producing and making and going and, and driving and striving. We have to trust this. Just stop. Moad. Stop. Season. Party. Festival. Remember that you're loved. The last implication is if this is how God chooses to tell his story, don't you think it should shape how we tell it too? Like, maybe we should tell it the same way. This is why we should not start the story with, hey, did you know you're a sinner? Or did you know where you'd go if you died today or tonight? I mean, because that's not where God started the story and it's not very fun and it turns people off and it says nothing about what God thinks of them in their fundamental identity. He loves them. And frankly, telling the story that way doesn't line up with orthodoxy. And, and, and if your orthodoxy is unorthodox, then you can forget about your orthopraxy working out very well. I want you to remember the visual from our Salt and Light series because orthodoxy plus orthopraxy equals Christianity. But orthodoxy minus orthopraxy, that equals hypocrisy. But it's in another category altogether entirely if you start in the wrong place and you don't actually hold an orthodox view of the story God is telling about himself. So we should start talking to others by telling them what they are and who they are, not what they're not. You are a human being made in the image of God with something to give this world. Now, yes, there's sin and there is brokenness, but that will take its proper place within the larger story that God's trying to tell them and you about your life and their life. But it's not what you start with. Sin is an intruder. It's not the definition of the story. Sin is something that enters the story late and it leaves the story early. And it's not how the story starts and it's not how the story ends. And I want to leave it there for us this week. I want to see you next week. Hope to see you then as we learn a little bit more about that word moad and the phrase I mentioned earlier, enough is enough. For now, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.